Hi, I'm Larry Woodard, and this is Admire, uh, where I have conversations with outstanding guests from business, sports, entertainment, and education. Today, I'm joined by Rashad Tabakawala, author, speaker, and advisor. Rashad has had what I would characterize as an important career, even if it is hard to describe accurately. He spent nearly four decades working with Leo Burnett and later parent company Publicis, helping them become a leading technology and digital media company. That statement doesn't really do justice to what he actually did. There's a long-standing ad campaign from semiconductor manufacturer Intel called Intel Inside, which successfully created a brand around the fact that theirs was the genuine processor needed to drive a computer. Having spent a decade at Publicis, I can confidently say that Rashad was our Intel Inside. That is to say, the heart and soul of our successful digital transformation. Rashad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Let me start by asking a question I've asked founders and CEOs from the beginning of my career. When you started out, what career did you have in mind, and how did you end up at Publicis? So when I graduated from the University of Chicago in 1982, I was very interested in trying to combine strategy. I was interested in strategy work, and I was also interested in marketing. Mm -hmm. And there was an agency in town at that time, uh, which still exists later than that, which at that time, it was a privately held company that worked for just 32 clients for whom they were really their strategic marketing partners. And uh, so that was interesting, and I applied. And uh, lo and behold, I managed to get in. It was actually the only job that I got. So you started Leo Burnett, and uh, so what was your job when you started at Leo Burnett, and how did it uh, start? When I started at Leo Burnett, I joined the account service or client service training program, and that had you first do media for a couple of years and then you moved into account service where I was an assistant account executive and an account executive. And I was in a sort of an account career for about a decade when I began to see changes happening and I heard about this new thing called direct marketing and I moved into the direct marketing group and then I figured out it didn't work for most people because you had to cut trees and find postage and find email lists. I mean, not email lists, mailing lists. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, I discovered something called Prodigy and CompuServe and AOL, and I convinced the company to launch an interactive marketing group. And that began 25 years ago, my digital career, long before most people knew what it was. Yeah, everybody in the advertising industry was trying to figure out, um, you know, how to integrate computers into the work, um, to what degree you know, the internet was going to, uh, to, to, to play, to take, you know, to be a part of it. Uh, but once you did that, somehow you accelerated and got to the leading edge. Uh, how, how did that come about? Uh, there were three broad reasons. The first, there was a big amount of support from my leadership, who, because I had had a relatively successful career the first 12 years, they took me seriously Versus, you know, if I'd come in either from outside or I was someone who was very young or new, because I said, hey, this thing is really going to change our industry. And since I've been in the industry for 12 years, they took it seriously. And they provided the support. So often I, when I started something, uh, you know, I wouldn't make any money, but they provided the support as long as at some stage it began to generate the revenues necessary. The second was I was very fortunate that I was surrounding myself or got surrounded by some amazing talent that knew actually how to execute what I was thinking about, not that they didn't think themselves. 
But by which time, you know, I didn't know exactly how to do these things, but they understood how to do it. And third, as in always, uh, there is a sense of luck. Hmm. And I just happened to get my first couple of clients who, which included McDonald's and General Motors, who decided to take a risk on things that were very, very new at that time. Like those, they were the first two advertisers that were not computer technology or software in America online. And as soon as they did that, then everybody took us seriously because we had two large brands backing us. So it was a combination of being lucky with clients, having lots of talented people around me and management that supported me. Yeah, it turned out to be uh, tremendously fortuitous. Um, so roll to uh, the not-so-distant past where Time Magazine names you one of five marketing innovators. You know, As someone who's really spent your career on the bleeding edge of technology, how are we doing as a country with technology? Are we using it properly? Are we behind or are we ahead? As an industry, I think broadly the advertising and marketing industry has truly, um, I think, become very, very uh, much on the frontier of this, primarily because the internet has become the largest advertising medium. Mm-hmm. So if and the biggest and marketing sort of platforms are platforms. There are you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon and, and others. Uh, overall, as a country, I think there's, it's clearly impacted society, but there are two sides to it. There is a positive side, which we are seeing a lot today, where we are using the internet to keep ourselves connected, uh, to get our work done, and a whole bunch of other things. But at the same time, there is a challenging side, which is these are extremely, um, these, these are technologies that can be used for purposes that are less than pleasant. So what I basically called, you know, the Facebooks and Googles, et cetera, of the world, not advertising ecosystems, but society operating systems. So there's society operating systems, and when not managed right, they can do bad stuff. Like, for instance, uh, you know, a lot of people are probably still getting a lot of wrong information about COVID-19. Right. This is an interesting segue into your new business book uh, entitled Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. That's an interesting title for a mathematician. Uh, what's, what's the general message of the book? So the general message of the book is that we are living in an age where data will become increasingly important. And as a result, many businesses are tilting towards both talking about data but more importantly, making their businesses more quantitative. However, what I propose is that businesses that tilt only towards data or are highly quantitative, with the exception of a very few, are likely to not succeed. And to be successful, you have to combine the left brain, which is what I call the spreadsheet, with the right brain, or the emotion, which I call the story. So the left brain is the spreadsheet of the company, the data of the company, uh, the math of the company and the and the story is the culture, the purpose, the values, and talent. And if you believe that you can only tilt one way the spreadsheet, you are likely to end up like um, Wells Fargo, which started opening fake accounts, or Boeing, which shipped a plane that wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you tilt towards too much to the right and you say, who the hell cares about the math? Let's just call it, talk about the meaning and let's just talk about the story. You'll end up with a company like uh, WeWork, 
which goes out of business or has got close going out of business because it's built, built on a fake story without any math or rationale behind it. But most successful companies combine the two. And then I compare how, you know, if you look at Southwest versus United or Costco versus the old Walmart till the new CEO took over, uh, you basically have more and more companies that succeed are companies both that balance the story in the spreadsheet. And when they succeed, not only do they have higher retention of talent, but most importantly, better results at a higher stock price. Now, that makes absolutely good sense. Um, let's let's probe that a little bit further, though. Uh, it's interesting that you write about humanity and the soul just before we entered into, you know, in my opinion, one of the defining moments of our age uh, with this COVID-19 epidemic. So what are your thoughts on the role technology is playing and will play? So I, I think technology will continue to play a big role in the future of every industry because we are living in an age where I believe technology and data are like electricity, which is no company, no business can work without it. On the other hand, uh, very few companies are going to separate themselves from other companies using technology or data. Very much like no company today claims that they're better than another company because of the way they use electricity. Yeah. If you plot this like on a diagram that goes both up and down and across, though, you know, um, and we and we start thinking about it. Um, one of the things that that people who are employers and they're working with young people, like my company, for instance, um, there's a there's a gap between someone that's been in business for three or four decades and someone that's a millennial or or even uh, uh, you know some of the, the generations that are proceeding. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that those guys are sort of hard to understand. They've grown up in this um, in this digital age. And so in so many ways, they didn't do what we did, where we came to work and we stayed to work at a company long enough to, to, to get adopted by the company, the company's culture, and we sort of learn a craft and then we take that further. Um, in this age where kids are changing jobs every two years and technology is really propelling how we move forward, um, uh, how do we contextualize that? Um, uh, you know, where, where do we, we sort of get uh, more of uh, uh, an underpinning and our feet firmly on the ground as we, we we're in an era, I believe, where um, a lot of people are going to drop out of the job market and a lot of young people are going to, to achieve roles that perhaps they're not even ready for. Um, how do you think that's all going to play out? So what is particularly interesting is the book that I wrote is when I wrote the book, my publisher was fascinated that my quote-unquote target audience was all humans who had to work, mm -hmm. right? So I wasn't targeting like a marketing community. I wasn't targeting experienced people or people out of school. My stuff is if you're a human being who has to work, that means you're dealing with technology and with people, this book should be for you. And as a result, the way to answer your question is there are chapters in my book which are basically about how to learn. Everyone is struggling, whether you're older or younger, how do you learn? So the chapter is called How to Upgrade Your Mental Operating System. Mm -hmm. Because we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to stay healthy. Now, obviously, before COVID-19, we also spent time. But, you know, the, the idea basically is how do we keep learning? And one of the things I found is older people uh, like myself 
at a certain stage stopped learning and we became irrelevant or he had the threat of becoming irrelevant. On the other hand, to your point, the younger folks, because a industry is moving intensely fast, they are moving very fast. You know, as I tell young people, your career will last 45 years. The average fortune 500 company lasts for 15, right? So you, as an individual career is like, likely to outlast a company 3x. Therefore, what has happened is companies are not investing as much in education and training. And as a result, one of the things in my book is how to learn all the things that nobody has taught you. So people are reading it and saying, no one actually taught me this. But fundamentally, what I do believe that is true, whether you're young coming up or you know someone trying to reinvent themselves, is one thing we have forgotten, and this is one of the things that the younger folks have forgotten, is because they maybe have not have learned, is how important human, people, and personal connections are. And in a very strange way, you know, today we are hungering for connection. Mm-hmm. Even though we are living in a deeply connected age, even though all of us have Skype and Zoom and, you know, Google Hangouts and everything else, we are just aching to actually meet people. Because what I truly believe is people connecting with people is the heart of all businesses. And that means put your screen down and actually look up and look at someone's face. That is, um, that, that's really, really important for, as I see it, for, um, for where we are right now. Uh, because you've got people and they're not just dealing with um, financial pressures or health concerns, but they're also dealing with fear of the unknown. There's, there's nobody um, on the planet right now that's, uh, that's conscious, that, that isn't uh, experiencing a, a level of stress. Um, what specific advice yes, do you yes. have? And, and the three, exactly, and the three emotions, really. And so a big part of what, I, what a big part of just building on what you said, the three key emotions, is one emotion is anxiety, mm-hmm. right? We are basically anxious. happen we don't know when this will end and you know until two months ago we had the best employment market so people were not really fearing for their jobs they were basically trying to figure out what next job to take Mm -hmm. they were not anxious because we were all you know thinking about how powerful we have become because of all mass and technology and to a great extent, we uh, you know had everything calendared and everything planned. And what this has basically shown that human beings, right, when they face change, it sucks. Yeah, um, and so starting from that point, so we've got change and change wholesale, and not only change but change that we don't understand. Um, you know, what's your advice for people who are having a hard time putting it all into perspective? So what I would tell people today is, uh, or what I do advise people is three different components. The first component is recognize that the only thing that you have some control over right now is yourself. You have very little control about your work environment. You clearly have very little control about about what's going to happen in the economy. You have very little control of how this disease is going to progress. But you have, in all of those three, 
there are things that you can do that you can control that can help whatever happens in those. So number one is you can have control over how you try to keep healthy and by you try to keep healthy, you keep everybody else healthy. And that, you know, is the washing of the hands, staying away from people, etc. Mm-hmm. Right? That's number one. Number two is this is the time where we know that when we come out on the other side. So I call this time the great reinvention, right? I think we should be look back at this phase and we, we won't call it the great recession, which we had, or the semi-depression, which I don't think we'll get to, but we're going to basically have the great reinvention because coming out of this, after eight, 12 weeks of this, people are going to think, feel, and see differently. And so what are some of the things that you can learn and you, how can you upgrade your capabilities for the world that's coming out? You can do that. And so a lot of what I myself am doing, even though I'm supposed to be at the tail end of my career, is I'm spending a lot of time learning music. Because my own stuff is, this is a, a, a basic opportunity outside of the reality that we don't know what's going to happen if people are dying, which we can, makes it terrible. But let's say we suppress that for a second, right? Someone has just basically told you, you can work from home and you can stay at home for the next eight weeks. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to rethink your relationships? How are you going to rethink what's important to you? And so I think that's the second thing that you can do, which is how do you use this to reinvent yourself? And the last one is this, which is how do you, if you are a leader or inside a company, think about how are you going to help other people, both people inside your company and others, because people need help. But as importantly, how are you going to help your company as a leader as you come out in the future? And one of the key things I'm basically, um, the five words I'm asking people to keep in mind is how are you going to increase your capability? How are you going to make sure you deal that you are someone who deals with integrity? How are you going to show empathy, vulnerability, but most importantly, how are you going to inspire people when people need now a way to go forward? That's um, that's all very, very good advice. Uh, an earlier guest um, uh, talked about the fact that he felt there were going to be a lot of white spaces uh, out there and that during this time, um, he was spending a little bit of time every day thinking about where those white spaces might be and uh, and how he might be able to take advantage of them. Um, uh, do you think that that, uh, that makes sense? Yes. So, you know, my sense is, um, so I'm writing a piece which is called the great pause is equal to the great acceleration. Mm -hmm. So what is happening is because of the way we've paused things for a few weeks, uh, it has accelerated certain behaviors that we had put into motion, but now it'll accelerate really fast. So, for instance, less working at work and more working at home. Second is there'll be no company that won't now sell online. So there'll be this will probably accelerate the demise of movie theaters. It will de- accelerate the demise of newspapers and magazines that aren't the global newspapers and magazines. Uh, it'll so those are and so those will be disappearing. But human needs that those satisfied will still be there. So how will those be done? That, I think, is one. Second is society, I believe, is going to change. And we're going to basically sort of think about, um, let's think about this. Uh, we were, there was this there was this huge debate as to whether uh, healthcare, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders' plan or Elizabeth Warren's plan, if any of those could be afforded 
because they would cost a trillion plus dollars. Mm-hmm. And people said, we don't do that. Well, so far we've now spent $6 trillion right. on trying to fix this problem. Right? So when somebody basically says government has no money, I think people are going to say, what the hell are you talking about? Second is this, you know, a lot of people basically said, who cares about government? Well, thank God we got government. Right? You might not like a certain type of government, but it's unlikely you dislike all your government. If you don't like the president, you like your governor or you like your mayor today. So the, the whole idea is society will change. Some businesses will go out of business. Other businesses will come up. And human beings will basically, I think, human beings don't change completely, but they begin to reflect what's going on in society. And, you know, to a great extent, nothing concentrates your mind as much as silence and the fact that you're going to run out of time. And a lot of people, I think, recognize both how important life is. That's the reason my book begins with time is the only thing we have. Mm -hmm. And I keep reminding people we are forgetting this. We are basically running, you know, and following false stars. And I think a lot of people are going to basically say, what is life all about, right? And not everybody, because there's a whole part of America that unfortunately has to get any job they can just to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be, I think, for instance, a rise of unions. What does that mean? So there are a lot of society changes. I think there's going to be some idea of basically, assuming that the Chinese have done this well, we don't know what their data is. Why did the Chinese and the Singapore and Koreans do it better than the Americans and the Chinese? These are amazing things. So what I, I give people is, Try to understand how society, how human beings, and how politics is going to change because that's where the new business opportunities are going to be. Less thinking about how business is going to change because business reflects people and society the other way around. Excellent. Um, listen, this has been, um, it's met every expectation that I had uh, and, uh, and I think uh, opened up my mind a little bit to some of the thinking that I've been having in, in my free time. Uh, I appreciate. Well, you thank coming. you, and thank you for having me on. Well, I appreciate you coming on as a guest, and and, and uh, my advice to people is to run out and to buy your book because um, it seems like it uh, it's right where it needs to be uh, when it needs to be. You know, it's kind of really interesting. A lot of people have basically said, as you noted, that this book is more relevant today than it was even two months ago when it came out. Right. And a lot of people say it's an operating manual for today. So if people want my book, it's very simple. All they got to do is go to Amazon and type in R-I-S-H-A-D, which is my first name, and it shows up. Beautiful. Rashad, thank you for being a guest. Thank you very much again. Bye-bye. Bye.